Join me, if you would, in Genesis chapter 44 tonight. Genesis chapter 44. And uh, I've been uh, giving Brother Mike a hard time all week, making him hold out for a title for last week's sermon because uh, we didn't get that one plugged into our presentation slides. And so, Brother Mike, you've been waited all week for this. Here's the answer. The answer is, if last week's sermon was entitled out of the frying pan, then this week's sermon, I think you'll guess the rest of the story, into the fire. And so we continue through the journeys of, of the book of Genesis here, and we're, we've come all the way to the life of Joseph, this fourth major patriarch of the book. Now, don't forget, these are the stories of the beginning of the nation of Israel, the nation that God would use, that Jehovah would use, to demonstrate His power and glory to the entire world, and those who would come to God would do so through His oracles that He would commit to the Jewish people who um, didn't stay faithful, did they? But thank God He was faithful to preserve His Word for us. And you and I today can learn at the feet of Joseph one more time. So come on with me if you would. Back through the portals of time. Let's take a journey back to uh, the land of Egypt in a land far away across the seas and across the isles to a foreign people that we don't know very much about other than what we can dig up through archaeology and what we read about in the Bible always corresponds to it. Everything we dig out of the dirt seems to point to the historical record here that's given to us and so we can learn a lot about what we see as we look at what is happening here in chapter 44. I won't read the entire chapter, but I do want to read a significant portion of the last half of it because this is where I believe Judah has his shining moment. And I want to take the time to read these scriptures. So follow along with me, if you would, at verse number 18 of Genesis and chapter number 44. Genesis 18, Genesis 44, and verse number 18, the Bible records, Then Judah came near unto him, unto Joseph, and said, O my Lord, that's a lowercase l, let thy servant, I pray thee, speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not thine anger burn against thy servant, for thou art even as Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have ye a father or a brother? And we said unto my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, a little one. And his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother, and his father loveth him. And thou saidest unto thy servants, Bring him down unto me, that I may set mine eyes upon him. And we said unto my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. And thou saidest unto thy servants, Except your youngest brother come down with you, ye shall see my face no more. And it came to pass, when we came up unto thy servant my father, we told him the words of my Lord, and our father said, Go again and buy us a little food. And we said, we cannot go down. If our, younger bro if our youngest brother be with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face except our younger, youngest brother be with us. And thy servant my father said unto us, 
ye know that my wife bare me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I saw him not since. And if ye take this also from me, and mischief befall him, ye shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to thy servant my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life. Note that phrase. Pay very close attention to that. I'll read it again. Seeing that his, Jacob's life, is bound up in the lad's, Benjamin's life. It shall come to pass, when he seeth that the lad is not with us, that he, Jacob, will die. And thy servants shall bring down the gray hairs of thy servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father, saying, If I bring him not unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. Now therefore I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my lord. And let the lad go up with his brethren. For how shall I go up to my father and the lad be not with me? Lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come on my father. Lord, I pray that you will help us to see Judah here and the way that the scriptures portray him. But may we not stop merely at Judah's story and his appeal and his intercession to Joseph. May we look and see through the Scriptures here tonight one who would come from the loins of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who laid down his life for our sake and died in our place as though he were us, for us. And Lord, may we be drawn to Christ through what we encounter and study from your Word tonight. And I'll thank you for what you do in our midst. And I ask your help upon this message, that it would minister your grace to our hearts. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Through the story of Joseph, it began back really in chapter number 37, as Joseph was coming into his his ages of being a young man, and about 17 years of age, his father sent him out to go check on his brothers, and his brothers had envied him, and they hated Joseph, And, uh, well, I heard this phrase a few times the past couple of days down in the springs. I guess they were eaten up with a peanut butter and jealousy sandwich. Amen. I'll steal that one. Brother Mike knows what I'm talking about there. And so they were eaten up with a peanut butter and jealousy sandwich. I'll say it again and and just reiterate that. Well, moved with envy, Joseph, they can recognize him before he ever even gets to where they are. And he had to go out of his way to look for them. They were not where he thought they would be, and uh, someone else pointed him in the right direction to go up towards Dothan, and so he heads north to go look for his brethren, not very far from where all the atrocities happened at Shechem, mind you, and so Joseph is, is on his way to go see how they're doing and bring a report back to Dad. wonder why Dad didn't trust him. I'm not sure, but I think old Jacob knew they were up to something. And So they see... This man come over the ridge and they can recognize that coat of many colors. 
moved with hatred and envy, they decide that they want to kill Joseph. Let's just end it all right now. Let's put him to death. Well, there was one of his brothers that stood in the gap for him and said, let's not kill him, lest his blood be in our hands. Let's do this instead. Let's sell him to the Midianites who are passing through. Providentially, by the way. And it was Judah. It was Judah who gave him the idea to sell Joseph after they had thrown him in a pit threatening to kill him. So from that day forward, once those Midianite uh, tradesmen, the Ishmaelites passing through the land, laid their hands on Joseph and bound him and started the caravan with him down to Egypt from there, from that day all the way up to chapter, uh, chapter 39 and 40, 41, 42, from that day, all those decades, Joseph never saw his family again until the famine hit sore in Egypt. Now, to get to where he is, Joseph, he wound up a servant in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar put him to work, and he faced false accusations from Potiphar's wife, which eventually landed him in prison. But don't forget the fact that it was evident on Joseph's life that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And everything that Joseph did prospered because the Lord was with Joseph. And Potiphar recognized that. Everyone else could see that. So Potiphar's in a hard position now. He doesn't want to have to put Joseph to death. That would be a logical conclusion, a logical punishment for what he was accused of doing in that day, just a Hebrew slave accused of, of uh, misconduct with Potiphar's wife. And so Potiphar has to do something. Joseph gets thrown into the, the prison ward there. And the same thing happened because the Lord was with Joseph and he was innocent in that. He was falsely accused. And for years in that prison, uh, he, had, he had authority in the prison. Uh, he, he was keeper of the prison there and things prospered under his care. Well, during his stay, a couple of Pharaoh's servants, the bottler and the baker, both uh, were thrown in prison or something that had occurred and Pharaoh had put them down there and lo and behold, there's Joseph with them with the bottler and the baker. And in the same night, those two men had dreamed separate dreams and they were perplexed by them and Joseph was able to help them understand what those dreams meant in that day. That's how God was communicating to them and Joseph was used by God to bring the fulfillment of those dreams and what God was doing. So we see this connection of the dreams. Joseph had two dreams that his brothers envied him for. What, are we going to bow down to you? And uh, then the, the butler and the baker has two dreams. And then lo and behold, after, after the butler is restored to his service and the baker loses his head, according to the interpretation of the dreams thereof, that Joseph made a plea to that butler and he said, when you're restored... When everything's better, when you get out of here, all I'm asking is that you let Pharaoh know I'm in here and that I'm innocent. Just help me get out. And for two more years, on top of what he'd already stayed in prison, Joseph was forgotten. And then Pharaoh has two dreams. Two more dreams connecting the theme for what God's tying all together by providence. And lo and behold, all of a sudden it comes back to that bottler 
Oh, yeah, I remember when you threw me in prison a couple of years ago. There was a guy down there that t- interpreted my dreams. He was a Hebrew. Pharaoh, I bet he can help you. Now, I think the butler did it personally so that he could get some gain out of it. You know, it, was, it wasn't for Joseph's sake that he remembered, I'm sure. But Pharaoh called for Joseph, and so they cleaned him up and shaved him according to the Egyptian custom and brought him before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh told him the dreams and the perplexity of it, how no one could figure it out. None of the magicians of Egypt could crack that one. And Joseph said, God will give the interpretation of the dream. Gave glory to God. And explained to Pharaoh that famine was on the doorstep of Egypt. After seven years of plenty, those fat cows eating the skinny cows. That was the first dream. And so you had the seven years of plenty, followed by the seven years of famine. Joseph also encouraged Pharaoh to appoint someone over the, over the affairs of it all to be able to save up during the seven years of plenty so that they would have what they need to serve everyone in the years of famine. Seven years of hard famine. That's another interesting thing to study through the book of Genesis. We've noted as we've gone through our journey the famines and how God used them to get His people where He wanted them to be. Many times God will do that. And this famine now moves Joseph's family, those brothers that had thrown him in the pit and left him for dead, sold him to the Ishmaelites that were traitors headed down to Egypt. Now those brothers, the tables are turned. And where one day they sat on a hillside in Dothan and saw a coat of many colors come over the hillside and said, that's Joseph. Now Joseph in Goshen, in that in that eastern part of Egypt, in the Memphis area, in the, in the Delta region, I believe he was he was there on purpose because it was where they'd have to come through if they came from Canaan. And I think Joseph, I don't know, maybe like that prodigal father looking over the horizon. When are they coming? When will they arrive? Because the famine is throughout all the land. Lo and behold, now the tables are turned, and Joseph sees them come over the rise and he knows them but they don't recognize him and he stays incognito and he's still in chapter 44 incognito they have no idea of Joseph's power they have no idea of what God has done according to Joseph's words later to save many people alive not only that but to fulfill prophecy that was given to Abraham about his descendants being in a foreign land for 400 years. This would be how providence would move them down to Egypt so God could deliver them with a mighty arm and bring them out through the Exodus, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And so we're looking at the beginnings of what will become the nation of Israel, one of their main patriarchs being Joseph and what God did through this man down in Egypt. Hey, nothing's too big for God. Now, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. I encourage you to do that as you read the Scriptures. Read it as if you're from Jacob's vantage point. Read it as if you're reading it from Joseph's shoes. Read it as if you're Judah. And and put yourself in those positions and see what the Holy Spirit can show you, how you can grow as you just read the Bible. And read the narratives of the Bible.
If we were to put ourselves in Joseph's shoes, you, like me, might see those rascals coming over the ridge and be like, my turn. That's not Joseph's attitude. But at the same time, Joseph is a very wise man. He's learned not only by education, he's also learned by much experience. And through his experiences, in the back of his mind, Joseph is still wondering, have they changed? Are they different? And as we studied chapter 43, we saw that Joseph began to put a little test before them. Now, they didn't know it was him, but he prepared a dinner for them. Now, we've got to back up a little bit and connect another dot in the story. They came down to Egypt to try to get food to take back home to Dad and the rest of the family. And they came and Joseph dealt with them and, and, uh, and accused them of being spies and they thought they were in trouble the very first time they came down. And then they found out that they were able to return back, but they had to leave Simeon behind. And so they've got to go back and get Benjamin in order to free Simeon because Joseph is keeping Simeon until they return. But he really wants to see Benjamin. He really wants to see Dad. And he's constantly asking, how's Dad doing? Is Dad okay? Your brother, is he okay? So they still didn't put it together that he knows more about them than they think. Because he's their brother and they don't even know. So they are able to leave, leaving Simeon behind. And they head back towards Canaan. And they get about halfway there and start looking through their bags. Uh-oh! <laughs> now we're in it. Because they found not only all the grain that they had gone down to purchase, but they found all their money in their bags. Which made them look out like thieves. That they had stolen that grain. And so they could be arrested for that. Now they're, they're scared and they go back home and they say, how in the world can we go back down there? They can't go back down without Benjamin. So this is the second trip down to Egypt for the remaining ten. Simeon is already down there, mind you. They're going to take Benjamin with them this time, but it took some coercing, didn't it? Because Jacob didn't want to let him leave. After what had happened to Benjamin, all, or Joseph all those years ago, he doesn't want to risk losing Benjamin now because as we read, his life was tied up with Benjamin's life. Friend, be very careful where your identity is placed. Because if it's in the wrong thing or the wrong person, even well-meaning, you will not be able to handle grief when it comes into your life like you should. And this is a lesson we learn very clearly from Jacob. Because Judah gives us the words that if something happens to Benjamin... Dad's going to die. Why? Because all of his identity was wrapped up in Benjamin, his favorite. And Jacob, this has been a problem for him from the beginning. And I think he had a really good teacher in his dear old dad. Because if we go back to Genesis 24, we find out when Sarah died, Isaac's mother, it said very clearly there that Isaac was not comforted until, uh, until Rebekah came into his mother's tent. Those are big shoes to fill. And I think it brought a lot of problems in the family after a while because, well, 
Rebecca just can't cook those biscuits like Mama did. And there, there's problems in the family. And Mom had her favorite, Jacob, and Dad had his favorite, Esau. And that was passed down to Jacob because he saw how Isaac had placed all of his identity, not only in Sarah at first, but when she died, Isaac transferred his identity then to Rebekah, and his whole life was wrapped up in her. Jacob learned how to do that from his dad. He had put all of his identity in a little maid that he met trying to draw water from a well one day. Love at first sight. Just like Rebecca and Isaac. She lighted off the camel with a veil on her face and the rest is history. Jacob comes up into Laban's territory and right by the well there, there's a beautiful young lady and he falls in love. Love at first sight. And so he works for Laban. 20 years of his life he's going to spend up there and all of his identity was wrapped up in Rachel. In Rachel. And then Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. And he's left with Joseph and Benjamin. Rachel wanted to name Benjamin son of my sorrow, Benoni. Jacob changed his name to Benjamin. And so all of his identity was transferred then from Rachel to Joseph. And then the brothers come back with that coat dipped in blood. Dad, what's this? Joseph's gone. It's Joseph, it's all my fault. All of his identity wrapped up in Joseph, then transferred to Benjamin. His life was tied up with the child. Friend, I want you to have your life tied up tonight in only one and one alone, and that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you'll find your identity in Him, hell or high water can't touch you. No matter what you go through, with Christ in the vessel, I can smile at the storm. We sing that in Sunday school, but how soon we forget And this is easy to do. As a husband, I've got to guard my heart that my identity doesn't wind up in my wife or in my children. And I start living vicariously through them and through other people. No. As Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now Joseph here has his brothers returning. And they're coming back for more grain. And as they came the first time, he gave them the first test out of the frying pan. That was close. I'm glad they brought their money back to be able to not only pay for that which they took the first time, but also to pay for more to bring back and and then a gift to appease the, the wrath, the possible wrath of this Egyptian ruler that they might have offended. And so they bring that gift and And then that servant says, what are you talking about? I counted all your money. It's all here. Whatever you found in your bag, that must be God's blessing. What? And so the favor that they had received on that first trip now begins to make them feel a little more easy. Oh, don't forget, Joseph had also prepared a great meal for them, but through that meal, he's still wondering, have they changed? Is there any difference now from the brothers that threw me in the pit. Are they any different? Fruit meat for repentance. You remember the test last time was they all got one plate while Benjamin got five messes. That's five messes to clean up. It's a lot of dishes. Amen? Five plates. And they set it down to in front of Benjamin and he feasted and 
fared. And, and we close Genesis 43 by looking and, and seeing how they weren't bitter about that. Why does Joseph get this coat of many colors? How come we don't get coats like Joseph? That was the envy that moved them to throw them in the pit. How come he's having all the dreams? Who does he think he is? We're going to bow down to him? All the envy, all the hatred. Now let's see how it plays out with Benjamin. No, they just said, I'm thankful for my plate. And I'm thankful that he got five. You see, their heart had changed. But Joseph still is not absolutely convinced that they've completely given up on their envy. Will they leave Benjamin behind when it comes time to save their own neck? Will they throw him under the bus like they threw Joseph into the pit? So there comes another test. Out of the frying pan, that was close, into the fire. Now, Joseph's going to turn up the heat. They might have made it through unscathed and had joy in their heart as they considered all the blessing and the abundance that they're going to take back home to Dad now. And all 11 of them get to leave. And they all start heading back home. But lo and behold, they get a little ways down the road and over their shoulder, they hear some footsteps coming. And it's Joseph's servant. Now, what they don't know is that Joseph had already told him what he needed to do. And he had told him just as before, you know, I almost titled this message, Fool Me Twice. They didn't learn the first time, did they? I mean, they'd gone through this before. Hey, we found all our grain and all our money in our sack. I don't know. I can't say that I would have done any better than them in this scenario, but by the time the servant catches up to them, they're going, no, we don't have it, we don't have it. We don't. Are you sure? <laughs> what happened last time you thought that you left without something in your sack that you had in your sack? This is round number two. Two, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice. Shame on me. But they're adamant. They are absolutely certain. We wouldn't steal anything. We're not thieves. Hey, don't you remember? We even brought the money back last time. All that extra money. We're not thieves. Why would we do And then they make a really tragic mistake because they have no idea that Benjamin's got the silver cup in his sack. They say, whoever's the thief, let him die. (laughs) Benjamin. Bye-bye. What? Now, I love this because... The servant had already been informed by Joseph, take my cup, my silver cup, the one that is most valuable to me, one of the most valuable things that you can find. Take that cup and don't hide it in Simeon's sack. Don't hide it in Reuben's sack. Don't hide it in, in Levi's sack. Don't hide it, hide it in, in, uh, in Judah's sack. Don't hide it in Gad's sack. Don't hide it in Asher's. You, you get where we're going? No. Hide it in Benjamin's sack. That's where it goes. And so they leave and, you know, the, they've got their camels laden and, and all their bags. I'm sure it's overflowing. They've got all the grain. They've got blessings. They've got money. They're headed back home. There's no way they're going to find a silver cup and all that stuff. And so the servant chases them down. They're accused of stealing. No, we wouldn't do that. And uh, playing it up like, like a... Modern day soap opera. He starts, he doesn't start with Benjamin. No, he plays it out to the very end. I mean, this guy's good. He'd be a, he'd be a good Broadway actor today, wouldn't he? 
I mean, how can you do this? How can you go through all 11 of them and keep a straight face? I wouldn't be able to do it. I'd give up on probably the second or third one in, and they'd figure out what I was up to. But this servant goes through each sack, one by one, down the line. By the time they get past one, it's like, see, I told you so. They get past the third one, yeah, I mean, keep looking. You're not going to find anything. Four, five, six, seven, yeah, hey, we're clear. You know, maybe the confidence is building. We're going to be all right. You know, I told you, we don't have it, man. You just go look somewhere else. Somebody else took it. We didn't take it. Eleven, number eleven comes along and they pop open that sack. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Now, none of you would ever do this, I know, and and I'm serious with that. I I don't believe anybody in this room would ever have this happen to them. But let's just say that you left here tonight. I kind of almost hesitate to use this because I don't want it to happen to anybody, and then I find out about it later, you know, or something similar or worse. So we'll just use that as an illustration, and, and this is imaginative, okay? Purely imaginative. Let's say that you pull out of here tonight, and you're driving down the road. Next thing you know, you got blues behind you. Whoop, pull it over. Uh... Sir, do you know why we pulled you in? No, I don't, I don't know, officer. I was doing the speed limit. You know why? Why'd you stop me? Step out of the car, sir. Can I see your license? Ready? Go through the whole gamut. Walk the line. Do the pen test. All of that. All right, sir. Sit down on the curb over there. A couple of other cars pull up with the blues on. Oh, now they got a dog. And they pull the canine unit out of the car. What? I just left church, officer. There's no way. There's no. I just came from a prayer meeting. And they start rummaging through everywhere. They start under the hood. They start checking your oil. What's the viscosity? Is it really oil in there? And then they go through the glove compartment. See, there's nothing in there, officer. And then they get to the trunk, and they pull back the carpet in the trunk, and lo and behold, you didn't know it, but somebody had already stashed a couple kilos back there, and now you're in cuffs headed to the big house. Now, that breaks down because a silver cup is not a kilo. (laughs) Okay. But I'm trying to give you an illustration of today so you can feel in your gut what they'd be feeling standing by those camels, sitting on that... How in the world? That's your vehicle, all right. And that's the goods in your car. And you're the one responsible for it. You talk about gut-wrenching. Now, they put Benjamin's life on the line. And Benjamin's going to be taken back There's one more test. There's one more test. Have they really changed? Are they going to leave Benjamin behind? In Egypt, just like they'd sold Joseph all those years before. One more test. Joseph had to see. Are they going to abandon Rachel's other son? The one that's the favored son? The one that got the five messes? Are they going to leave him behind like they left me with the coat of many colors and took that and deceived old dad? Now Joseph is the one deceiving them but it's for a test. God's said about this, everything falls short of thorough repentance, which does not prevent us from committing the sin anew. I had to read that twice before it sunk in. So let me say it again. Everything falls short of thorough repentance. That is a changing of the mind that leads to a changed life In other words, you're not reformed. You're not going to truly repent thoroughly all the way through. He says, everything falls short of thorough repentance, which does not prevent us from committing the sin anew. So what he's saying is that there had been no real genuine repentance, they would have done the same thing. They would have treated Benjamin just like they treated Joseph before. 
And so this is the test. We don't so much desire to be accurately informed about our past sins and to get right views of our past selves. We wish to be no longer sinners. We wish to pass through some process by which we may be separated from that in us which has led us into that sin. That's a lot to take in. He says, such a process there is for these men pass through it. These men. How many decades of their life did it take? And the guilt-ridden conscience. Now, one thing we didn't mention is that when Benjamin gets caught with the cup, they come to the conclusion, God found out. God found out what? God found out our sin against, not Benjamin, against Joseph. Years riddled with guilt, plaguing their heels every time they turned around. No rest for the weary. The way of the transgressor is hard. And here, these men have passed through such a process that has exposed their true repentance I believe that somewhere along the line there was a genuine change that happened in this family. And it took a hard road to hoe to get there. And many years. But they're not the same. And this episode proves that because here Judah begins to shine. I want you to notice just quickly and I'm done. When the heat reveals the dross. Joseph turns up the flame. And as as that metal begins to cook, and that dross, he's looking, is the dross still there? You know how silversmithing works. You've probably read the illustrations or at least seen somebody blacksmithing. They cook that silver and they, they cook it so that that dross comes to the top and then they'll scrape the dross off and cook it some more and scrape the dross off and cook it some more. And the key is... How do you know when it's done? When the silversmith can look in the pot and see himself in it. That's when the silver's done. Joseph turns up the heat. Is there going to be dross that comes to the top? Or is there genuine repentance? Have they truly changed? Are they better people today? Or are they still the dirty rotten brothers that threw me in the pit? What's their heart? The cup was planted. You see that? The silver sack and the cup of the favored son in verses 1 through 6 and And so the cup is planted. It's interesting to me that the silver referred to here, you'll see the word silver over and over and over. It was silver. It was 20 pieces of silver, mind you, that the brothers sold Joseph in slavery for. 20 pieces of silver. And here it's a silver cup that now Joseph uses to bring Benjamin back to the prison. Silver object to test them to drive them into a state of panic. So the cup has been planted. The plan has been executed flawlessly. And the servant did exactly what Joseph told him to do. Right down the line, all the way to Benjamin. Benjamin's in prison and they're all headed back to Egypt as thieves. Now, I do need to deal with something here in these verses that you'll see over and over, maybe two or three times. I did cover a little bit of this when we talked about Laban and the teraphim that he was looking for. 
Joseph talks about this silver cup as being a cup uh, that he could divine by and that he could uh, use as divination. And so you've got to answer what this is going, what, what's going on with this because if you cross up your theology, you're going to do a disservice to the text, number one, and you're going to be really confused about who Joseph is, number two. We're talking about espionage warfare in a sense, I think. And I do take the side with Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. I think De- uh, Derek Kidner in his commentary pointed out that uh, the translation, the wording of it could be that the cup could be used to, um, to, to figure something out. Okay, But also keep in mind, in this day and time, you can read in the Law of Moses that in order to discern certain things, they were allowed to cast lots. And so they're interpreting God's will by dreams. They're finding out God's will by casting lots. Because they don't have Genesis to Revelation, a closed canon like we do. They don't have the Word of God to go by. God is still in the process of revealing Himself, and He uses various means to do that. And so, don't let that throw you off track. Now, I will point this out. The text and the Bible and the narrative about the life of Joseph never one time shows us any instance where he ever used divination or sorcery or magic or witchcraft or any of that nature. He simply has his servant say, this is a cup by which he could divine by. Now I think it's interesting, play on words there, because instead of divining what might be the will of God, he's divining the test for his brother. So he is using the cup to discern He's using the cup to lead him to a certain judgment about his brothers. So it is, in every sense, as the translators have rendered it, a cup of divination. But don't think that for a minute Joseph is engaged in, in uh, some kind of demonic activity from the pits of hell or something like that as under Pharaoh. I think what he's doing is just maintaining the disguise. He's incognito. And this is just another way that he can keep that mask on because they're never going to suspect one of their brothers for sure being involved in anything like that down in Egypt. And so it just helps keep the, keep the character. And I, I do believe that that's really the intent of it. But it is of interest, one writer said, that Joseph acquires information by means of the cup, not by pouring liquid into it, but by using it to test his brothers, thus using observation at a different level. They were certain of their innocence. We're not thieves. We're not thieves. Verses 7 and 8. Hey, if we're thieves, let whoever's got it die. Verses 9 through 11. Busted the cups with Benjamin. Busted. Take them back to jail. Verses 12 through 13. Hey, I want to tell you, be sure your sin will find you out. Look with me here, if you would, at verse number 14. We begin reading... A little bit after this, look at verse number 14. Judah and his brethren came to Joseph's house, for he was yet there, and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said unto them, What deed is this that ye have done? I was so good to you, and this is what you do to me? I treated you with nothing but grace and kindness, and I I had a wonderful meal with you, and I sent you away with blessing after blessing, and this is how you return? You render me evil for good? Who do you think you are? What is this that ye have done? What not? What ye not? That such 
a man as I can certainly divine? Hey, did you really think you could get away with this? You didn't think I'd find out? You didn't think I'd figure this out? <laughs> They're probably like that. That first grader I had sit next to me in the class that was absolutely convinced our teacher had eyes in the back of her head. <laughs> She'd be writing on the chalkboard. Jimmy, stop it! <laughs> Busted. <laughs> How'd she know? Yeah, you moms got that too, don't you? Yeah, always. Not getting anything by mom. Not getting anything by Joseph. What, you didn't think I'd find out? And Judah said, got nothing to say. There's no excuse I can give you. We're caught. Red-handed. I mean, our, the cup was in the bag. And I don't know how it got there. Maybe they're wondering, Benjamin, that rat, how could he do that? And we just had lunch with the guy yesterday, and he goes off and hauls off and five-finger discounts his cup. What's up with that? Benjamin? No, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that they would think Benjamin would do that. They were convinced that he didn't. They were standing up for him just like they were standing up for all the other brothers. I don't have anything to say to you. What shall we speak or how shall we clear ourselves? We're, we're guilty. But notice this. Underline this in your Bible. God hath found out. God's the one that brought this up. So Judah is putting some things together. Remember, Reuben had already kind of brought this up. I warned you guys. You were talking about what you are doing to Joseph. I warned you. I said this was going to happen. I, did. I told you so. That was Reuben. And now Judah's going... Look what God's done to us now. He's brought it out. Be sure your sin will find you out. You might get it by dad. You might get it by mom. You won't get it by God. He already sees. He already knows. The right way is the way of confession and repentance. Lord, I'm before you poured out like water. I'm open before you. Nothing is hid from your sight. Let the Word of God be quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It will pierce, it will divide asunder, but it's with Him with whom we have to do. And He is gracious and loving, but He is also one who will hold us to accountability. And it's time to come clean. And so God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and He also with whom the cup is found. Verse 17, And he said, God forbid that I should do so, but the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. As for you, get you up in peace unto your father. No, I just want Benjamin. You guys go back home. Benjamin's going to serve me. He's going to be my slave. I'm not going to kill him. I'm not going to put him to death like you told me to. (laughs) I'm going to keep him as a slave. He's going to stay with me. You guys go back home. Now Judah's in a pickle because the whole reason Benjamin was able to leave in the first place was because Judah put his neck on the line for him and said, Dad, I promise I'll bring him back. If I don't, then it's my neck. And that was chapter 43. And now Judah has to think about going back to Dad empty-handed with no Benjamin. You really think you can get away with it? God found out. Now Benjamin is bound. And he is Joseph's slave. I want you to notice, not only when the heat reveals the dross or the lack thereof, when that fire is turned up, I want you to notice that when the dross is finally gone, that's when the silver shines. Now Judah has his moment, probably the best moment you ever read about him in the entire Bible. And he stands up and is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ and His substitutionary death for us. 
and he puts himself in Benjamin's place. He makes his plea with Joseph, and an intercessor arises. And Judah begins to stand on the carpet before Joseph and pour his heart out and intercede on behalf of Benjamin, not just for Benjamin, but for Jacob. For Jacob. It was for the better of the entire family because of what would happen to dad if anything happened to Benjamin. Judah is selfless and he is interceding for his brother, for his father, for his family, for Leah, the rest of them, all of them. He's interceding. It takes sacrifice to do that. Did Judah do anything wrong? Did Judah hear? Now, the answer is yes, because go read chapter 38. Of course, Judah did plenty wrong. But did he do anything wrong in this instance? No, he didn't. He didn't steal the cup. He, he's innocent. But he is taking the guilt... He is taking the blame. And when we intercede on the behalf of others, we need to remember, like Ezra, like Nehemiah, hey, when we pray for America, just because you might not have committed the sins that our nation is guilty of, doesn't mean that you can't intercede for our nation and say, Lord, we are guilty. Lord, we have sinned. Our churches need this kind of repentance. It's high time that judgment begin at the house of God. And if it begins there, it must begin with me. And Judah arises as an interceder. And he makes intercession for Benjamin on behalf of his father, while death looms at the very doorstep because dad is going to die if Benjamin doesn't make it back home. That's how serious the situation has become. And then notice, there's a sacrifice of substitution. If we're truly going to intercede, it might mean that we have to give something up. And we might need to make a sacrifice so that others can see Christ in us. Just as we can see a picture of Christ in Judah. Notice verse 30-34. to You see here as it closes, I'll just read verse 34. Actually, I've got to back up to verse 33. Now therefore I pray thee, please Joseph, please Joseph, let me stay and let him go. Let me stay and let him go. There was a time where our Savior hung suspended between heaven and earth and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And He stayed so that we could go. He died so that we could live. He took our punishment so that we could be free and at liberty restored unto the Father. Let me stay and be the slave, Judah says, and let Benjamin go free and enjoy the bounty and the blessing with the family. Let me stay and bear the punishment. A sacrifice of substitution. I'll leave you with this statement and we close. The work of genuine repentance is seen in the fruit of godly sorrow. The work of genuine repentance is seen in the fruit of godly sorrow. Would you pray with me? Lord, I ask that You would help us tonight to go forth 
as your servants. What a story, what a time, what an event. We know, Lord, this isn't the end of it. As the story continues to unfold, we find this is the breaking moment for Joseph. This is the moment he's been looking for when Judah puts his neck on the line and says, let me stay and let him go. As Christ died for us and said, let me take their sins so that they can go in righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And to them that believed on Him, received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on His name. Thank You, Lord, for the life we have through Your death, for our sins, Your burial according to the Scriptures, and Your resurrection according to the Scriptures. Lord, may we allow You to work in our heart and life to bring us to a place where the dross is finally gone, that purifying process of purging and cleansing so that when You as the Master would look into the vessel filled with that molten metal, You wouldn't see the dross anymore, Lord, but more and more of Your image would shine through. That's when the change will occur. When we're truly sorry. When the sorrow has come. Not the sorrow of the world that worketh death, but godly sorrow that worketh repentance unto which is not to be repented of. And once we're steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, then we'll know we're ready to intercede like Judah interceded. We're ready to pray for others the way that we've been prayed for. We're ready to lay down whatever it takes, Lord, to see others find life, to stand in their place, and to take what would come to them so that they can go free. As Paul said, he would that he could suffer hell that his kinsmen would be saved. I remember a time when I prayed a similar prayer for a family member of mine. Lord, and it's impossible. I can't go to hell for them. But my heart was such that I would if I could. As a father pitieth his children, Lord. As a father or mother looks upon a sick child and wishes that that disease could be theirs instead so that their child could go free. Lord, I pray that You'll help us to see the sin-sick souls around us and to be moved to intercession to pray for souls and then to show them Christ because You've done so much in our life, Lord. I pray that others would find Jesus through our testimony. When the dross is gone, may the silver shine.